Join us as we think about the difficult yes. Hey, welcome. It's another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, who called us to live to a higher standard every day. Not satisfied with just a little religion in life as a shallow substitute instead of giving God our best. As our series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who are influenced by Elizabeth, her life and message. Hey, it's good to have you with us. Well, let's look at the plan for today. We have parts three and four of a five-part seminar series called The Highest Form of Service, Dealing with Difficulties and Learning to Say, Yes, Lord. We'll hear the voice of Ed McCulley talking about Jim Elliott, Elizabeth Elliott, and Pete Fleming, and how well they had learned the language. Also, Ed's son, Steve McCulley, joins us, whose father, Ed McCulley, along with Peter Fleming, Roger Udarian, and Nate Saint, and Jim Elliott, were killed on January 8, 1956, reaching out to the Alka people. He didn't know them, but he did know the widows. And uh, we'll get insights from both of the McCulleys today. All right now, let's start with dealing with difficulties. Well, Elizabeth reads from a letter about uh, someone who decided to take seriously the idea of submission. Is that part of being a good wife? The word submission is not popular these days. What is the biblical idea? How did it affect her marriage? This and more coming up. Now here's a little letter, sweet letter from a lady. When I got married 26 years ago, I was a Christian, but I did not have a clue about how to be a good wife. I found a little booklet by Billy Graham called How to Have a Happy Home. When I read it, I learned submit to your husband and forgive your husband. Well, I figured God told that to Billy through the scriptures, and Billy told me, and that's got to be the best advice available. So I set out to be the most submissive wife around. My friends thought I had completely lost my mind. Today, they are all divorced, working hard at their worldly professions, trying to make ends meet, and they are very lonely. I'm still sitting in my nice home with my sweet husband, and we are more in love every day. I have not had to work. He provides everything we need, and we never argue. Our home has been a very quiet, peaceful one for 26 years, even with two sons. I got your tapes. Me, Obey Him, and that's the title of a book by Elizabeth Handford, one of my classmates in college who has written a wonderful book. For any of you that are having trouble and are asking yourselves that question, me, obey him. I strongly recommend Elizabeth's books. It is a blockbuster, and it hit me right here, right between the eyes. All the years that I've been talking to women about submission to their husbands, don't imagine that you're looking at exhibit A of the perfect wife. I'm not, not by a long shot. And I've had to learn to submit in very different ways to three very different husbands. But this lady says she got the tapes, me, obey him, and I listen to them every day, and I can testify that it works. Two simple words, simple because you know exactly what they mean. They're not easy, and let's make a clear distinction between simple and easy. 
God gives us simple commands. We understand what he says. And one of his commands is, wives, submit to your husbands. And so back to this lady's letter, she said, I read what Billy Graham said, submit to your husband and forgive your husband. So those were two things which would not come naturally to any of us, two things which she probably would never have thought of if it weren't for the scripture which she happened to come across through a book by Billy Graham. But of course, the world thinks you're nuts. The world thinks, how can anybody live like that? Why should any woman have to submit to a man who is fallible? Maybe he's the most wonderful man in the world, but he's going to make some mistakes. How am I supposed to submit to him? Well, I've said enough about that particular thing, because a whole lot of you are not having a problem with that. But I want you to realize that you have to make a decision to do something rather than just to feel something. And very often that uppermost feeling is self-pity. Poor little me. And self-pity is satanic. Many letters start out with, Elizabeth, please tell me how to deal with, how to deal with loneliness, how to deal with this great difficulty, how to deal with a teenage son, how to deal with my boss at work, how to deal with the landlord, how to deal with my sorrow, how to deal with my feelings of rejection. What can I say to them? Do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering. Remember that it gives you a share in Christ's sufferings. You are not alone. He is with you, and he wants you to learn your lesson in the middle of this pain. He's not going to jerk you out of it just like that. James says in James 1, when all kinds of trials and temptations come into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realize that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. Dealing with anything is living moment by moment with God in that thing or in spite of that thing. Dealing with it is entrusting it to God. Lift up your heart. And this is an ancient admonishment in many, many uh, of the old writers many, many centuries ago, like 1,500 centuries ago. And of course, it's in the scripture. Lift up your hearts. And in some churches, when the, the pastor says, lift up your hearts, the whole congregation says, we lift them up to the Lord. And to me, that's a wonderfully liberating thing to do. I'm worried about something, and I lift up my heart to God. I just realized this morning in the motel room that I have lost the directions for getting to my daughter and son-in-law's church on Sunday. We expect to be in California tonight, Lord willing. And they've moved their church since we were there last time, so I had called and very carefully written down the instructions for getting from our motel to their church, and I can't find it. You know, it's such a tiny, ridiculous little thing. It isn't as though it's not remediable, but Right away, I just said, well, Lord, I lift up my heart. I'm not going to let this bother me. I've got far more important things to do today than to stew over that. 
but because I pride myself on knowing exactly where everything is. <laughs> I hate to lose things. Recognize God's will in the challenge of this situation. Now this is all under the second point, a decision to do something. What am I supposed to do? Recognize God's will in the challenge of this situation. This is what it means to deal with it. Comply with it in the appropriate way. Comply with the will of God in the appropriate way. If you hate your husband, then the appropriate way for complying with that, with God, with the will of God, is to start loving him. A radical reversal of attitude. A decision to do something. Now God's providence, which is one word for God's sovereignty, God's control, God's rulership, presents us, you and me, in the form of people, conditions, and circumstances which his will sees as necessary, he presents to us a spiritual curriculum. What is your spiritual curriculum today? With what has God presented you in the form of people, conditions, or circumstances? The curriculum, of course, is God's appointed lessons to be learned. And there is not a day that goes by that God is not assigning us lessons to be learned. Very often it's the same one, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But we have to review it, and we have to go over it, and we have to learn it. Now what is your challenge? Life demands that we act not on a mere abstract principle, not with subjective arbitrariness, but in accord with, in other words, appropriately, life demands that we act appropriately to the demands which are inherent in the situations themselves. What is the demand that God is assigning you? What is the demand that he's making of you in your work situation, your health, your financial situation, your home. Some of you are fed up with this place where you have to live. There's got to be something better. Some of you feel very limited because you don't have the kind of talents and gifts that you think you need in order to serve the Lord. And that is one of the devil's master strokes. If he can get you and me to think that we have not really been adequately qualified to do what we think God wants us to do, we are listening to the arch enemy of God because the Bible clearly tells us that he has given gifts, plural, to everybody. And just because you don't have the gift that these people had standing up here singing or the gift of the one who plays the piano or the gift of the person that gets to speak, what has that got to do with your inability to serve God? He wants you to accept the demands which are inherent in the situation itself. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, we have a responsibility to care about that kingdom. Not to be surprised. Lift up your hearts. Choose to do what God wants you to do about that thing. Somebody says to me, I have a problem with anger. Now what is a problem? It's a question proposed for a solution. 
That's what a problem is, a question proposed for a solution. What does the Bible say you're supposed to do with anger? Work through it for 20 years? The Bible says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Just put it away. Dump it. Number three, the result of these two other things, the radical change in attitude, a decision to do something, the result is going to be peace. And let's look at Romans 8, verses 5 and 6. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. And we women are really good at setting our minds on something that we want real bad. And so the Bible tells us very clearly who we are, what kind of people. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on only one thing, which is what the Spirit desires. That was part three of The Highest Form of Service, Dealing with Difficulties. Our seminar series continues with Learning to Say Yes. Well, today we hear from two Macaulays, Ed and Steve. Ed begins as he talks about Jim Elliott, Elizabeth Elliott, and Pete Fleming and how they were doing in learning the language. Our work here in Quito, at least our time here in Quito, is for the same purpose, and that is to learn the Spanish language. We feel that's our purpose in staying here in Quito, and we feel that's our job to do. And so that's what we're trying to do, is learn the Spanish. And so that, perhaps, is our number one request as well, that we might have the Spanish quickly, we might have it accurately, and we might be able to use it in a way that we might present the gospel to these people in their own native tongue. And I believe it's a real testimony here. We are told by the nationals, by the folks right here in the home in which we live, that, that some of the assembly missionaries, I'm thinking of Jim and Pete particularly, and Miss Betty Howard, they have acquired the Spanish in such a way that uh, they've lost their American accent. And they tell us that when they speak Spanish, they speak like a national. And that's a real testimony. It gives them real access to present the gospel to these people. And so praise the Lord for that, and pray that we too might have the language in this manner, that we might present the gospel acceptably and uh, clearly. Uh, the voice of Ed McCauley, one of the five missionaries killed in the attack by the Alcas. Steve McCauley, his son, will join us in just a little bit as he talks about the men and their widows. Right now, though, learning to say yes. Part four in our seminar series, The Highest Form of Service. We invite you to turn to Isaiah 32 to think about the fruit of righteousness and the effect of righteousness, about quietness and confidence. In Isaiah 32:17, we read, The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. And we all know, if we look back on our spiritual lives, that the times when we have been most obedient 
have been the times which ultimately have led to joy, even though obedience often leads to suffering. Let's not forget that. Suffering is a part of our spiritual training, part of God's curriculum. But we also know, and probably it's easier to remember this, that the times when we have been disobedient have led to misery. And don't we see an illustration of that in our little children? When a little child is being disobedient, he's really not happy. He's quite miserable. The next brother to me, I'm number two of six, and six in the family, I have four brothers. My next brother's only 13 months younger than I am. And he, he was the most mischievous of, of all the kids in our family, I guess, and my mother had more struggles with disciplining him. But um, he, he just had a way of just getting away with all kinds of things that the rest of us couldn't get away with. And my mother would often say, he is tuning up for a spanking. <laughs> Meaning that what he was doing right now was not really bad enough to get a spanking, but he was just doing a whole lot of little needling things that just were irritating everybody. And so he would tune up, and sometimes this would take a couple of days, over the several days he would be tuning up for a spanking. And he was getting more and more hard to deal with and more and more miserable and making the family miserable. And so, of course, my mother would eventually administer the spanking, or my father would. And it was just like a sunrise after that. I mean, he just turned into the sweetest little boy you ever saw. And maybe some of you have a child like that. And don't say you have a strong-willed child. You do not have a strong-willed child. You have a stubborn and rebellious child. Because strength of will was demonstrated in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. And when your child finally, after much struggle, complies with your will, then he is beginning to learn the lesson of strength of will. But I've chosen this scripture because it does illustrate so wonderfully, so succinctly, that we are not meant to be surprised. We are meant to maintain an even and calm spirit, no matter what surprising things may happen, and to accept whatever the lot may be that God has assigned to us. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, two very different conditions of life, aren't they? Peace and sorrow, and yet there is a sense in which there can be peace in the midst of sorrow when we learn to say, yes, Lord, I know you're in charge, I know you love me, and I know that this thing has not happened by mistake. Is it well with your soul this afternoon? Are you astonished or surprised that God would allow a certain thing to happen. We wonder why in the world God allows this and that to happen. And of course, it's none of our business why. He has given us many clues in the scripture that suffering is required. It is necessary. The storms are necessary. I read that the uh, eucalyptus trees of Australia need forest fires 
in order to survive. And these raging forest fires seem to be the most frightening of, of any kind of forest fire because eucalyptus is full of oil and it makes the trees literally explode and it races very quickly through a whole area. And when my husband and I were in Australia, we drove through many, many miles of burned out eucalyptus forests, but you could see that already there were little shoots coming up. And I read later that it was required for the survival of a eucalyptus forest that there be fire. And there are certain kinds of plants in the desert that require wind, terrible wind, which strips them in order for them to survive. And these are metaphors of spiritual truths. Was your soul at peace this morning when you woke up? Was there anxiety, dread, anticipation of evil. Well, who is in charge? Who rules the winds and the waves of life? This little testimony from a poor Methodist woman of the 18th century whose name is not given, I go back to again and again. It just uh, brings peace to my soul, and it reminds me of a dear old lady that used to work for my mother. She was a lady in her 70s. She refused to even think of herself as old, not for any silly reasons that most of us women have nowadays that we don't like to admit our age or anything like that. But she just felt that the Lord had so many things for her to do, and she helped us. Her name was Mrs. Kershaw. Well, this lady's name was not mentioned, but she's a woman from the 18th century, and this, is, this was her testimony. I do not know when I have had happier times in my soul than when I have been sitting at work with nothing before me but a candle and a white cloth and hearing no sound but that of my own breath with God in my soul and heaven in my eye. I rejoice in being exactly what I am, a creature capable of loving God and who as long as God lives must be happy. I get up and look for a while out of the window and gaze at the moon and the stars, the work of an almighty hand. I think of the grandeur of the universe and then sit down and think myself one of the happiest beings in it. Sitting there with her sewing, you know, 100 years ago when a woman spoke of her work, she was usually referring to sewing. That was the word they used. They carried their work with them when they went anywhere. They always had a little sewing to do if they got delayed anywhere. And of course, I also have some illustrations from Radio Mail for whatever I'm going to talk about. This is from a woman who weighed two pounds and two ounces when she was born. And because of receiving too much oxygen, she was totally blind. She says, my parents never gave up. They made me do chores around the house, and I did not always get my own way. Mom used to tell other kids that I see with my hands. My parents love the Lord and have taught me to love him too. I rise up and call them blessed. 41 years later, I find myself being a mother with four children of my own and a husband who is just right for me. I can play several musical instruments, have written a few songs, and I sing in two nursing homes. Being blind has been discouraging at times. But then someone comes along to tell me how much of a help I have been to him. 
Every day I remember that I belong to Jesus and want to follow him no matter where he leads. Isaiah 42, verse 16, says that he leads the blind in a way they do not know and will turn their darkness into light. If God will do that for me, he will surely lead and guide all of us if we only let him. Now listen to this very carefully. My job is not to figure out why I can't see, but my job is to follow Jesus. I can concentrate on just that one thing instead of many little things. He is el camino, la verdad y la vida, the way, the truth, and the life. I don't know why she wrote it in Spanish, but there it is. And I'm going to make the most of it. I am no super person, but just someone following an infinite creator. Yes, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and she signs it, joy in Christ. And I'm reminded of Fanny Crosby, who at the age of nine wrote this little poem. You may remember that Fanny Crosby was blinded at the age of six weeks by a doctor's mistake. And Fanny Crosby was the author of about 8,000 hymns. Among them, uh, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, uh, To God Be the Glory, Great Things He Has Done. There's just many, many hymns that are very familiar to me from Fanny Crosby. When she was nine years old, she wrote, Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented, I will be. Notice the word resolved. It is a choice, isn't it? How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind. I cannot, nor I won't. Nine-year-old child. Well, I've read that, I suppose, more than once on Gateway to Joy. And I had a letter from a prisoner who paraphrased Fanny Crosby's poem in this way. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I am not free. I am resolved that in this cell, contented, I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm chained, I cannot, and I won't. A radical change in attitude comes with acceptance, trust, obedience. Part four in the seminar series, The Highest Form of Service. That was learning to say yes, Lord. Well, we heard from Ed McCauley earlier. Now his son, Steve, joins us. Steve was very young, uh, three, I think, when his father was killed in the attack by the Alcas. He doesn't remember the five men. But what about the widows? I hadn't seen her for all those years. And she comes, and she's Elizabeth Elliot, right? Everybody knows her as Elizabeth Elliot. And she came to the door, and I said, Betty, it's so good to see you, without even thinking. Because I haven't seen her in 40 years. My mom's seen her a number of times since then, but I haven't seen her. And then I said, I hope it's okay for me to call you that. And she said, Steve, I can't imagine you calling me anything else. (laughs) It's interesting how that works, you know, because we were so young. Uh, I don't even remember the guys, right? I don't remember my dad. Mm. Uh, but all of the women, I, I knew them later. It's Aunt Marge, it's Aunt Betty, Aunt Olive, Aunt Barb, right? But it's not natural for me to say Uncle Nate 
you know, I just call Nate Saint because I didn't, I don't remember Nate Saint. Right? I don't remember Jim Elliott. And and Kathy, Kathy Saint, being seven years old, she remembers him. Right? She she won't talk about my dad without saying Uncle Ed. She remembers Uncle Ed, but I don't remember Uncle Nate. <laughs> right. But I remember, but I remember Aunt Marge. Aunt Marge was, you know, such a huge part of our life later on, and Aunt Betty and Aunt Olive. It's just funny, just based on our age, what we remember. Steve McCauley, whose father, Ed McCauley, along with Peter Fleming, Roger Udarian, and Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, were killed on January 8, 1956. Well, it looks like our time together is coming to an end, but thanks for letting us come into your home. Maybe along with you as you uh, got some exercise. Maybe at the office, wherever we found you. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out elizabethelliot.org. elizabethelliot.org. More talks, devotionals, videos, and more Gateway to Joy programs. elizabethelliot.org. Well, until next time, may God remind you each and every day, you're loved with an everlasting love. Underneath are those everlasting arms. 